If you would turn with me in your Bible this morning to Psalm 26, Psalm 26, a psalm of David. And as we're reading the psalm this morning, I just would like to encourage you to be thinking about or be aware at least of how does this psalm strike you? What, is, what, what sort of emotions does it bring up in your, in your heart? What, what, what comes to your mind? Just kind of be aware of uh, this psalm. I, I trust it's not a psalm that's well known to you. I doubt anyone has this uh, hanging on their wall uh, or stapled to the fridge somehow. I, it's not a psalm that, that little boys and girls memorize, I don't think, in school. I certainly never did. Um, and so we're, we're, um, we have new territory in some sense here in Psalm 26, and I think we'll see why as we read it. Psalm 26, a psalm of David. This is the word of the Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, for I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Let's ask God to bless his word. Father, this morning we need to hear a word from God. And whatever our situation in life this morning, I pray that your spirit would speak this word for our blessing. <clears throat> for our edification and building up in the faith. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 26 um, is a psalm that I think is challenging for uh, contemporary Christians, for most believers. It, uh, if you were thinking about what emotions it was uh, sort of bringing up or what thoughts were going through your mind, I, I think maybe some of you were thinking, I could never talk like this. Uh, this seems really bold. It seems almost proud, self-promoting. Uh, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, as we read that, you maybe thought to yourself, that's why I don't like hanging around with Christians. They're so self-righteous. Uh, if you're a Christian and you're sitting here today, maybe you thought, that's why I don't like hanging around with Christians. They're so self-righteous. It just has this sort of a ring to it that's um, we're not quite sure what to do with it. I'd like to imagine if you were a Christian and, and um, you're in a Bible study and it's time to pray, what would you do if the person across the table from you actually prayed like this? Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in you without wavering. I hate the assembly of evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked. What if they actually prayed that? I would open my eyes and like, is he serious? 
Can you do that? Can you pray like that? Can you talk like that? See, what do you do with the psalm like Psalm 26? How do we, how do we understand this? How, how do we make sense of this? Well, I, I think the best thing to do is simply to listen to it. Whatever emotions or thoughts are going through your mind, maybe if you just take some time to, to put that aside, let's, let's just listen to it because I think we're going to find it's not an offensive psalm at all. It's actually a beautiful prayer from an earnest man who he's just talking to his God. He's in a time of trial, and he's looking to the Lord for vindication. He wants God to judge between him and his enemies, and he's committing himself to the Lord. And, and therefore, Psalm 26 actually is a, a great psalm with which to compare ourselves, to compare our prayers and our life. If we don't pray like David does here, maybe we ought to. Maybe the Holy Spirit has actually given us this psalm to train us in prayer, to train us in godly living. Uh, The title of my message is What Godliness Looks Like, because I think that's what Psalm 26 is. It's the prayer of a godly man. Now again, godliness is not a term that that you hear much. Um, It sounds maybe stuffy. It sounds maybe religious self-righteous, you know, really moral people who are kind of proud about their morality. Godliness is not a term that we, we, we use that often, but it's a, it's a tremendous biblical word. Paul says that we're to train ourselves in godliness. Well, what is that? What does it look like? Yeah, well, it looks like Psalm 26. It looks like a a desire to know God and a delight in God and in the the worship of God and the people of God. It looks like a determination to please God. Godly people aren't uh, just self-righteous, religious, moral people. If you think about the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they were all that. They were not godly. That's because godliness is about God. And the Pharisees are about themselves and and self-righteous, religious people the same. But this is about godliness. This is about God. And so this morning, we're going to look, uh, you maybe have an outline with you, we're going to look at the focus of godliness, and the path of godliness, and the affections of godliness, and the hope of godliness. The focus of godliness, the path of godliness, the affections, and the hope. Let's begin then with the focus. Uh, Some of David's psalms, you'll have a little note at the beginning that explains the context uh, historically that, that he's in, where he writes uh, this psalm. We don't have that here. Uh, as best we can tell, David is, is just once again, being, he's under attack. He's the king. He's a leader. People uh, have a tendency to feel free to attack leaders. And these are most likely Jewish men uh, who have some positions of authority in, in the, in the uh, city, in the state. And they're, they're publicly attacking David, charging him with wrongdoing. Well, when people verbally assault you in some way, gossip about you, slander you, where do you look? What, what do you do with that? Because I think we'll find that we generally look to our friends. 
Uh, if, if we have people who are saying bad things about us, we'll, we generally go to our friends and we share the story. Can you believe what so-and-so has, has said about me? Uh, that's what the world does. It, it, it goes to other people and talks about what's happening. It's not what godliness does. You see, David doesn't go to his friends and complain. He goes to God and prays fundamentally different things. And so he prays, Lord, vindicate me, defend me, prove me. If I'm wrong, Lord, then show me I'm wrong. But if I'm right, then then show that, prove me and test me, try me. Your steadfast love is ever before my eyes. David is looking to God. This is what godliness looks like. It, it looks like in the reality of life, in the, just the normal stuff of life, and particularly the trials of life, instead of going to other people first and leaning on them, we go to God and look to Him. And David, you see, has God then in view. And, and notice he speaks of the steadfast love of God. So this that word is the, the chesed, the, the covenanted love of God. It's God's promise, I will be a God to you, and you will be my people, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to leave you alone. And, and David looks to that steadfast, covenanted love and that covenant God and trusts him and says, uh, my life is in full view of my God. God, you, you, you judge here. Between me and my enemies. I'd like you to turn in 1 Samuel 24. Because we have a, here's a real example of David doing this in a, in a particular circumstance. 1 Samuel 24. If you have your Bible, if you could quickly turn there. This is about David's battle with King Saul. King Saul, remember, has decided that David is his enemy. Saul knows that David's God's anointed to be the next king, but he doesn't like that fact, and so he sets himself to kill David, charges him with treason, and seeks his life. And so David is on the run for about eight years, hiding from King Saul. Well, in 1 Samuel 24, uh, we have this wonderful Old Testament story. It's not bashful. Uh, David and his men are hiding way in the back of a cave because Saul and his men are coming near. Saul needs to uh, go to the restroom, and he sees this cave, and so he goes into the cave uh, to use the facilities, and David sneaks up and cuts off a corner of his robe. Doesn't kill him, as he could have, just cuts off a corner of his robe. Well, Saul uh, makes his way back out of the cave and over to his men, and David comes out then to the front of the cave, holding this cut-off piece of Saul's robe, and in verse 11, if you look with me, 1 Samuel 24, verse 11. Now, let's just start at 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you. But I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. 
May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Jump down to verse 15. May the Lord, therefore, be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So that's what David is praying. That's exactly what David's doing here in Psalm 26. There's a circumstance where he's being falsely accused, and yet he says to Saul, the false accuser, the Lord will be judged. The Lord will decide who's right and who's wrong. And, and he's doing the same here. He's taking his case before the Lord. You be the judge. There is tremendous peace in this. When, when people slander you, when people falsely accuse you, when your reputation is, is uh, under assault, or your words have been twisted, or your actions have been misinterpreted, we get all worked up. We get all excited, we get angry, we get anxious, and we're trying to figure out so often, how do we fight for our rights? How do we defend our reputation? How do we, how do we uh, pr protect ourselves from the words that are being said? Well, you see, David doesn't go there. He has a God in heaven who knows the whole story. And what God thinks, you see, is ultimately all that matters to him. Paul, you have the same thing in Paul. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3. Paul was always being slandered. But he says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. He's not even going to let his own conscience falsely condemn or accuse him. For I'm not aware of anything, he says, against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Just because I don't feel guilty doesn't mean I'm not guilty. It is the Lord who judges me. Just puts the whole thing in God's hand. God, God will make it clear. God knows. God will judge those who are attacking me, and God will judge me. So you see, at the end of the day, our life, our reputation, our well-being, it's not in the hands of men. It's in the hands of the Lord. And, and so our appeal then is always to God. And so let me just ask you this morning. How about you? What do you look to in a time of trial? Do you look to the trial? Do you look to the hurt? Do you look to your fears? Do you look to your desires? Do you look to your friends? Do you look to your lover? Do you look to your hobby or your addiction? Godliness looks to the Lord. Looks to the Lord. God, you vindicate, you judge, you decide. Prove me, try me, test me. See if there be any wicked way in me. It's a wonderful place to stand. And so the focus of godliness is God. The path of godliness is then to walk in God's ways. Notice David speaks of walking twice in verse 1 and 3. Verse 1, I've walked in my integrity. Verse 3, I walk in your faithfulness. This idea of integrity matters to David. It is, in a sense, a basis of his appeal to God. Vindicate me for I've walked in my integrity. Now that's a concept that it's hard for us to grasp because it, it sounds arrogant and it doesn't, it doesn't seem true. Not given what we know about David. Here's a guy that slept with his, not just his friend's wife, one of his most loyal soldiers. He slept with 
with her. And then he had that honorable man put to death in order to cover up his sin. And this guy is talking about integrity. You, now maybe we could say, well, it's possible. What about if David just wrote this psalm before all that happened? Okay, but then wouldn't you uh, later on, after that happened, just decide, to let's just take this one out of the songbook. Do you really want to go on record uh, appealing to your integrity when you've sinned like that? Well, it might surprise you to know that uh, David's not the only one who speaks of his integrity. Uh, God speaks of David's integrity after David has died. When in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 4, God is speaking to Solomon, David's son, and he says to Solomon, As for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, So God looks at David's life, knowing all of the sin of David's life, and God says, David walked with integrity of heart and uprightness. I think this is important for us to understand what integrity here means. I listened to probably six sermons trying to get my hands around this psalm. And and every sermon tried to find some way to make David not say what he's saying. Try to find some way that David really isn't appealing to his integrity here. He's appealing to Christ's integrity. No, he's not. The personal pronouns are right there in front of us. This is not David um, appealing to the imputed righteousness of Christ applied to his account. He's not doing that here. He'll do that in other places. He's not doing that here. Here, he's talking about his integrity. And he's appealing to God, Lord, look at my integrity. So what does integrity mean? Well, it can't mean a life unmarked by sin. It can't even mean a life unmarked by scandalous sin. See, do we we have a category for integrity for sinners? Because I think in our mind, integrity as a Christian means that you keep your nose clean. All right? you, 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 as a Christian, you live, the, you live the right way. You do the right things. You, you don't have scandalous sin. Maybe normal sins, but not scandalous sin. Well, the Bible just absolutely confronts that, rebukes that. You see, the, the integrity that David's talking about is covenantal integrity. It's not moral, pharisaical integrity. It's covenantal integrity, and this is what I mean by that. It's living as a sinner saved by grace. David doesn't deny he's a sinner. Psalm 25, verse 10, verse 11, excuse me. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Remember not the sins of my youth. Don't deal with me according to my sin. David David knows he's a sinner. He knows he's a scandalous sinner. But you see, David believes that God's covenant is for sinners. That God has made a way for sinners to be in covenant relationship with him. And and that's what David trusts. And that's why he says, my eyes are on your steadfast love. It's a covenant term. It's God's covenant commitment for sinners. 
And David, then you see, lives as a sinner in covenant with God who delights in God's salvation and who loves his God and wants to please and serve and obey his God. That's what he lives for. And it grieves him when he fails. It grieves him when he falls. When he sins, he repents and, and casts himself back on the mercy and kindness of God. So that, you see, if, if you're a sinner, it, it doesn't mean that you don't get to wear the, the integrity tag. You don't get it ripped off. I'm sorry, there's, there's scandalous sin in your life. No, 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 no. Sin is not an obstacle to covenantal integrity. Sin is why you're in the covenant in the first place, right? You, you came because you needed salvation. But if your heart is truly for God and, and you love his ways and you trust in his salvation, you desire to obey him and from your heart, that's covenantal integrity. Well, how do you know if that's really what's happened to you? Because we know there's all kinds of people in the church who, who have the external markings of a covenant integrity, and yet their hearts are far from God. We know that's true. There are hypocrites. Hypocrites are, 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 are people who claim to be religious and to love God, and yet there's no evidence in their life. So how do you, how do you know? How do you, how do you tell? Well, you tell by your affections, you see, the reality of your heart's fundamental commitments are, are going to be found in the things that you prefer, the things that you choose, the things that you love and hate. And so here in Psalm 26, David, in verses 4 and 5, points to what he does, what he hates, and then uh, 6 through 8, what he loves. Uh, I do not sit, verse 4, with men of falsehood. I don't consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. In the Bible, when it talks about hate and love in this contrasting way, it's not talking about primarily a feeling. It's primarily a choice, a preference, where you turn your face, where you set your heart. So when God says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, he's not saying I had an, uh, an emotional response to these two men and therefore I uh, acted accordingly. He's saying I made a preference, I made a choice, and I've shown my face to Jacob, but I, I didn't show my face to Esau. I made a preference. I made a choice. That's what David's talking about. It's, as he talks about wicked men and, and then the house of God in verses 6 through 8, he's just, he's just saying there's a, there's a choice to be made here. You have the same exact idea in Psalm 1, don't you, where David says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. doesn't do that. He doesn't choose that. But his delight... His love is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. He's, he's made his choice. So this, this, this isn't just about how you feel, but what you choose, what you prefer. Kidner, in his commentary, says, hating the assembly of evildoers is not a matter of social preference, but of spiritual alignment. Where, where does your soul line up? Where does your affections go? What direction? Because there's two options, and only two options. David speaks of the assembly of evildoers. You could read that as congregation of evildoers. 
There's two congregations. You have the assembly of evildoers. You have the assembly of God's people. Two contrasting communities of worship. The worship of the culture, the world, and the worship of God's people. And the culture has its own worship. I was... um, just reading a book review. I've not read the book yet, but I want to. Jamie Smith has written a new book uh, entitled, You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love. The the Spiritual Power of Habit is the subtitle. And and he just points out that there's these two contrasting communities of worship in the world. Uh, the, The cultural worship and then Christian the worship of God's people. The culture, I think this is the, the strength of the book, if, 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 if I'm reading it right, is that we don't, we don't think of this, but the culture is engaged in worship services all the time. It has its own liturgies. It has its own assemblies. The shopping mall, the movie theater, sporting events, these are worship services, not just social events. And in these worship services, there are liturgies that play out, that express the ultimate values and and purposes of the kingdom of this world. And the, 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 the acts of worship that take place in these assemblies are molding the hearts of those who worship. Because you see, the liturgy is telling a story, and it's telling you where you fit into the story. So if you go into the mall, the mall is is preaching. It's telling a story about what is ultimately valuable, what is ultimately desirable. And your place in the story, you see, is a consumer. Where you fit in this liturgy, you fit in this narrative as the person who is there to to agree with the values and the principles that are placed there in front of your eyes and then to participate in them. They don't hang the pictures of the pretty women and the good-looking guys in the windows just for you to admire. You see, they want you to participate, to buy the clothes so you too can be the, the beautiful people. It's worship that's taking place. Black Friday and Super Bowl Sunday are not just American cultural events. They are religious holidays. And so these things, you say, they, they invite you to love what they magnify, to exalt what they hold before you. And so against that, contrary, stands the worship of the kingdom of God. And the, con- and, and the worship of the kingdom of God is utterly different. It also has a liturgy. It has a story. It tells us what is ultimately valuable, what's ultimately meaningful, but whereas the kingdom of this world holds up the accomplishments of men and the, and the desires of men and the beauty of men, uh, the kingdom of, of God's worship holds up the, the magnificence of God, the glory of God, the beauty of Christ. It's a completely different narrative. And, and the story that, that we're told in Christian worship is that our place then is, is as those made in the image of God to be in relationship with God and to find there what we were made for. And there's, a, and there's a way that that happens. In, in, the, in the worship of the world, you participate by consuming. You buy the ticket, you buy the clothing, you buy the technolo- technology, whatever it is. You participate by consuming. In the kingdom of the worship of God, you participate by receiving. 
by receiving freely. There's nothing you can't buy. You don't have any money to buy. Come those without money. Come buy wine and bread without money, without cost. You come to receive a free gift, and, it, and it's a gift that comes to you by suffering, by death, by atonement. And so David talks about an altar that he gathers around. It's, it's where sacrifices are made and blood is poured out because David believes in, in the worship of the kingdom of God centers on a sacrifice through which we can have a relationship with God. He talks about how he delights in this worship, David does. Proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. Verse 8, oh Lord, how I love the habitation of your house. I love where your glory dwells. You see, there, worship does things to you. Whether it be in the, in, the, in the kingdom of the world, the cultural worship, or the kingdom of God, Christian worship. It shapes us. Smith makes a great point here that it... Worship molds us. We're either being conformed to the principles of this world, Romans 12, 1, or we're being transformed but to the principles and purposes of the kingdom of God. Smith writes this, when we realize that worship is also about formation, we'll begin to appreciate why form matters. The practices we submit ourselves to in Christian worship are God's way of rehabituating our loves toward the kingdom. Isn't it true that so often you'll come to church and you're just spiritually flat? You're just, you're not there spiritually. And yet as you go through the liturgy, as the, as the greatness and the goodness and the glory of God is held up in front of you right at the beginning, and you sing a song, and you're maybe half paying attention to what you're singing. But yet that truth resonates somewhere in your soul. And then we move to a time of confession, and you recognize hey, that is you. You are, you are the sinner. And then the, the, the assurance of pardon. And then we get to have a time of congregational prayer. And then we move into, we give back to God, and, and then we open his word together. Isn't it? And then we have this, a song of thanksgiving and praise at the end. Isn't it true you walk out different? The liturgy has molded you. The, the form, you see, um, the formation is, is related to the form. So Smith says the, the basic structure of Christian liturgy narrates us into God's story. This is who God is. This is what God has accomplished. This is what he promised. This now is who you are by faith. And it is the story of which I'm a part, in which I'm a character that determines what counts as character, as virtue. If the narrative of the world is your story, if that's where you find your place, then, then the character, the virtues of the world will be your virtues. Pride, self-reliance, self-dependence, self-promoting, all that stuff. It will have molded you. But if the story in which you are a part of is the story that God's telling, then if you're a character in that story, you see, that, that determines what virtue is. It's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Those are the, be the things you, you, you long for. Smith adds a fascinating note here. He says, the church cannot expect to borrow its, litur its liturgical forms from malls, coffee shops, or arenas, and not infect the gospel 
with those narratives, purposes, and loves. So if the worship service just looks like a large Starbucks, something got missed. We're not Starbucks. We're not the mall. This is not a sporting event where you come and you pay your money and you get entertained. It's fundamentally different. This is worship where God has taught us how we participate in the liturgy and the narrative of the gospel so that our loves are being rehabituated. And that kind of worship inspires a lasting, deep, true hope. And that's where we'll end here. Verse 8 really is the, trend, is the centerpiece. Oh, how I love the habitation of your house. I love where your glory dwells. David's affections are for God and God's worship and God's people. And, and that, that, that moves his thoughts beyond his current suffering to the future. He came into the psalm saying, Lord, vindicate me. My enemies are attacking me. Now he's, he's moved to thoughts of, the, of, of eternal things, ultimate things. Verse 9. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners or my life with bloodthirsty men. There's an end for my enemies, and it's awful. If these men really are uh, the enemies of God, there's an awful end. Lord, don't let that be my end. But let me dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's David's heart. As for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Lord, I'm committed to this path. Redeem me and be gracious to me. I'm committed to trusting in your faithfulness. You see, David's integrity is not just walking in my integrity, but walking in your faithfulness, verse 3. That's where his hope comes from, the faithfulness of God. Redeem me and be gracious to me. I'm going to lean on that faithfulness. I'm going to lean on that grace. I'm going to lean on that love. And therefore, my foot stands on level ground. I'm not teeter and, and tottering about to fall on this shaky foundation. I'm standing on level ground. Because I'm standing on faithfulness. I'm standing on steadfast love. And in the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Here and forever. Well, how do we read this as we wrap up as New Testament Christians? What does New Testament integrity look like? <clears throat> well, focus. What do we focus on as Christians? We focus on God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. So Paul says in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above, put your, your, your heart on things above where Christ is. New Testament covenantal integrity isn't about religion. It's not about rules. It's about, it's about Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Have you met him? Do you, del do you delight in Jesus? Do you take your troubles to Jesus? Do you carry your sins to Jesus? Is that your focus in the real stuff of life? Instead of complaining to your friends, do you go and pour out your heart? to God and Jesus Christ and ask Jesus, Lord, what would you have me do here? I want to honor you. I want to obey you. That's what Christians do. What's the path? Well, the path is to walk in Jesus. Colossians 2.6, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Lord, what do you want me to do here? How do I honor you here? How do I please you here? You're my Lord. You're the boss. You're my Savior. You're my King. I want to honor you here. I want to walk like you walked. Titus 
2, 12, 13, the grace of God teaches us, the grace of God, all the love we have in Jesus Christ teaches us to say no to ungodliness. I don't want to walk that way. And trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's grace, you see, that's able to help us walk in godliness, to help us love Jesus and walk in his faithfulness. Affection, what do you love? Well, we have to love Jesus, don't we? What does, Peter ask, what does Jesus ask Peter when he's going to reinstall him and put him in, now finally into Christian ministry? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus asked you that this morning, do you love me, Christian? Then love each other. And the New Testament hope, of course, is that this Jesus who's claimed us is not going to let us go. He's going to hold us fast. And one day we're going to praise him. We're going to praise him not only in the great assembly like on the Sundays, and we need to do that. It's absolutely critical. We need to be rehabituated. We need the worship of God. Because the worship of the culture is happening all the time. But we're going to worship not only in the assembly of, the, of God's people in this life. We're going to worship in the assembly forever and ever. The great assembly. Morrison says it's a sort of source of unspeakable enjoyment, even here, to unite with the saints and to give utterance to the grateful feelings of a redeemed heart. But what will it be to mingle in the rapture of the skies? What will it be to swell the anthem of the heavenly harmony, to lift up our voices with 10,000 times 10,000, all of whom have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb? That's what we're looking forward to. That's what we're hoping in. And that changes the way we think. It changes the way we live. It changes what we run after. That's our home, the house of God, the eternal dwelling place. And, and we want to be there. Lord, don't sweep away my soul with wicked men. Save me, redeem me, be gracious to me. I want to be in the assembly, of the, in the great assembly. Friend, I don't know. Um, I might not know your heart today. I, I really can't tell. God knows your heart today. These are eternal truths that God wants you to know. And God wants you to examine your heart and your life. Where are you in accordance with these, with these eternal truths? What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you doing to, day to day with Jesus? And I think we'll all confess, even when we believe in him and trust in him, Lord, help our unbelief. And maybe you're here today and you simply want nothing to do with this Jesus. Uh, friend, I beg you to reconsider because he's coming again. And the wicked are going to be swept away. The Bible promises it. it's God's own very word. And yet just this Jesus came to suffer the condemnation that I deserve, and that every person in this room deserves, so that on that last day we need not be swept away, but we can stand and we can sing with God's people forever about the grace and the mercy of our God. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh God, I thank you for a psalm like 26 that breaks through some blind spots that challenges us with eternal truths. Lord, maybe we've sensed your Holy Spirit this morning addressing an issue in our life where we've not looked to you, we've not trusted in you, we've taken things in our own hands, we've acted out of fear, out of maybe hurt or pride or just uncertainty, maybe lust, maybe anger. But we haven't, Lord, we haven't loved you and looked to you and we haven't loved each other well and, and we need your forgiveness.
We're, we're sinful people. Well, God, I, I thank you that we can appeal to you and say, Lord, help us, direct us. We want to be, Lord, people who live in co- with covenantal integrity, people who live uh, not trusting our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness, and, and in that, people who are walking in faith and growing in faith, people who are walking in obedience and repenting obediently when we sin, people who are clinging to Jesus Christ, people who, who trust that he is able to save to the uttermost weak people like us. And Lord, I, I pray then that, that as we pursue Christ, that our lives will be more and more molded according to the, the narrative of the gospel, of all that you've done and all that's yet to come. Lord, transform us by the worship of God so that, Lord, we hunger for for God and for his people and for his worship in this life and the life to come. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.